Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I just want to give a big trigger warning at the top here that this episode contains a lot of discussion of suicide. It is a story that contains the story of somebody committing suicide. So if those are things that you do not want to hear, I would skip this episode. Do you have an unexpected story to tell or know someone who does? We'd love to have you on the pod. Please apply at please don't tell anyone pod at gmail.com. Or follow our application link in bio of our Instagram, Please Don't Tell Anyone Pod, or TikTok account. So they did confiscate his guns. And this is the key part of everything. Hey, and thanks for coming back to Please Don't Tell Anyone. I'm Molly Clark, your host, and this is the podcast where you hear unexpected stories by ordinary people. I go and blind all my interviews so that I can hear the story firsthand just like you. Don't tell anyone, I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone, please don't tell anyone. I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone, I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. In August 2020, my husband killed himself and I found him. At this time, we were separated and I was dating someone else. After his death, his mom took to social media to accuse me of his murder and insinuated that my new partner was also involved. I mean, that's pretty heavy. (laughs) Yeah, literally, like, hearing somebody else read it is such a weird experience. Uh, Yeah. Because it's, like, real life. It doesn't feel like that. Like, it feels like it never – like, a movie I watched or something, you know? Exactly. Yeah, that's what – we were talking about the episode from last week, but, like, reading hers back to her – and usually reading it back to people, I think it must feel like like you're reading the back of a book. Like, are you going to pick up and read that book? Because as right. a listener, you're a listener to the pod. It's like, oh, am I going to find this interesting? Yeah, but this every was your episode, life. I feel like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As I say to everyone, like, I'll let you start from the beginning and I can jump in and ask questions. But um, I can prompt this a little bit in just saying you were married to someone. And you had kids with that person. Yes. And so in September of 2020, oh, I'm sorry, in September 2019, we sort of had a moment in our marriage where we both realized like this isn't working for us. It was more of a aha moment for me, I think, than him because he desperately did not want us to not be together, even though we were having a lot of problems. Yeah. We stayed living together because he was military. My priority was the kids relationship with him. And he was deployed so much that, Mm. I mean, we were married for 10 years and I think maybe half of that he was deployed. Mm. So, or training or something. So um, I wanted to stay living together. Anyway, uh, in January of 2020, I ended up meeting the person I'm currently with. And, you know, I told my husband, even though we were separated, you know, he was seeing other people, I was seeing other people, but I told him I knew this relationship was something that was different. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what that started was his mental decline. Like he had already had, he had PTSD, um, a lot of other issues, but it really changed for him. He attempted suicide on St. Patrick's day of 2020. Like literally we moved into a new house, quarantine hit, 
he tried to kill himself. I ended up calling the police. I'm sorry, were you going to say something? Yeah, were you all living in the same house? Yes, because uh, he was supposed to deploy in May of 2020. So we were all living together because the thing was he was going to leave. And while he was gone, I was just going to stay in the same house. And when he came back, we would get separate places because the house we were living in was like super inexpensive. So we were just going to save as much money as we could. Yeah, and it was quarantine. And it was like the beginning of quarantine. Exactly. So I called the police. I I found him in our, well, not our room, but it was the master bedroom Mm -hmm. with a gun. And I ended up calling the police and they came, they, it was like very scary because he was in the basement in the house. I ended up getting the kids out, but like, it was like hostage situation. Like there was police everywhere with guns. Like I've never seen anything like that in my life. It, it literally didn't feel real. Did you see that coming? <sighs> there was an incident that happened a few weeks before that. You know what? I'm just going to say this because I think that this is also really important for people who are in domestic violence situations. A few weeks before that, he pulled a gun on me. And he said, I just can't, you know, I don't want to live my life without you. I don't know how to do this. And I would just be happier if like we were all gone and talking about me and my children. Okay. Yeah. I said, I literally like my, my youngest at the time was only two. Uh, I grabbed her out of bed and was like, you need to put the gun on the ground right now and like slide it to me or something. I'm leaving. And I just walked away immediately and I don't know what I what happened in that situation that he didn't end up doing that because nothing would have stopped him. I mean there was nothing would have stopped him basically from shooting you. Yeah, or the kids or himself or anything in that situation. And I ended up that night I called his oh his warrant officer which was like his like chain of command the next person to call. Mm-hmm. And I I told him what happened and he sort of he was very dismissive about it well, we deal with a lot and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I know, but like, I should have called the cops. Like I ended up leaving. I went and stayed at the guy's house who I was seeing Mm -hmm. that night with my kids. Anyway, so, but that was like the only thing I would say. He had never outright said like, aside from that situation that he was suicidal. It had been a while. He had, when he'd come home from Afghanistan or his other deployments, he had said like, I really am depressed. I don't want to be here. I don't want to feel like this, but never like, I want to die, you know? So when that situation happened on St. Patrick's Day, they took him to a military facility. He was supposed to be there for 24 hours, which I was like, 24 hours is not enough time. Yeah. He ended up, because of COVID, quarantine starting, they kept him for a week. In that week, every time we spoke on the phone, he said, I'm just doing whatever bullshit I need to do and they need to hear so I can get out of here because I just want to be home. He asked me multiple times when he got out if we could work on our marriage. I was advised by the chaplain, the, uh, like his chain of command, do not tell him yes or no on anything. Just say, we'll talk about this stuff when you get out because we don't want to trigger him is what mm-hmm. they said, which I understand, but also he's in a very safe space. So I was now about to be say, I totally disagree. I feel like this is the time to trigger him, and, not when he's home with a gun and children. Right. So they did confiscate his guns. And okay. this is the key part of everything. When they confiscated them, the, the police department was supposed to keep them for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And then they were supposed to be given to his chain of command to put in their arms room mm-hmm. for the remainder of his time at that duty station. So they took the guns. I kept seeing this guy. He got out. I could see his mental decline, but he was supposed to be going to therapy. Well, then his therapist, who was a military-provided therapist, 
his wife got cancer. So he was like, I can't see you anymore. But instead of transferring him to a new person, he just stopped seeing him. So he was out here after attempted suicide with essentially nothing, no guidance. And he didn't want to be on medication because he was convinced it would, he was very paranoid. So he thought if I get on medication, my career is going to be ruined, which is not the case at all. I was just going to say, it's interesting that he was worried about his career being ruined when you were saying like, he'd come back from deployment and just be like, I just want to be home. And he felt like the only things in his life that were worthy of anything were his kids and his job. He was in for 10 years and went from being a, uh, he went in as a private and he, when he died, he was a uh, sergeant first class, which is almost unheard of now to rank up that quickly, especially in his branch. So his whole life was his career. I mean, that's, he loved us and he was an amazing dad. I mean, incredible dad, but his career was his passion of his life. And even though it hurt him, he loved it so much because he felt so fulfilled, which I think is amazing. But I kept saying to him, who cares about your job if you are dead? And that was like my whole thing. Like, you're not going to be here for your kids because your mental health is so bad. But I reached a point, my daughter had surgery in June of 2020. And when I was home that week, because after he tried to kill himself in March, I started staying pretty much exclusively over at, uh, let's just call him Josh, the guy that I'm still with. I was exclusively at his house. Mm Mm-hmm except for like if we were doing something as a family. And when my daughter had her surgery and I stayed a couple days because he really wanted to be around her, I was, you can feel when someone is that depressed, it almost like sucks every ounce of energy out of your body. I don't know if you've ever experienced that Mm -hmm, before, mm -hmm. but it almost like hit a point where I was like, I'm trying everything I can to get him help, to be there for him, but also like be able to preserve my own mental health and be a good and present parent for my kids that yeah. I didn't know what to do. And then he found out he wasn't deploying because he couldn't have a gun because he had attempted suicide. And that sent him into this terrifying spiral, honestly. I was hoping that you could pause here and just tell us why you're doing this podcast. Okay. Um, I I mean, I'm doing this because I think this is a really important thing for people to hear. Like, you know, we kind of talked and touched on that. I I think it's important to hear about the lead up to, you know, the signs of it. But also for me, the aftermath of suicide is a horrible thing. And I think it's really important to hear the context of a person who has gone through what I've been through. It's important to hear that story because so many people don't talk about it. And I, I think... It is the loneliest, scariest time when everybody shows up, but then, you know, like you mentioned, like that two weeks, three weeks after, everybody goes back to their normal life because their normal life isn't, oh, I just lost this really important person in this really traumatic way. I mean, I I hate saying this way, but like he was a side character in a lot of people's lives where in my life, he was the main character. The main character. In my kids' lives, he's the main character. So suicide is scary and messy and awful and there, the aftermath of it is even worse. And when you add on top of that, people accusing you of things that are not true, it just like, it's even scarier because yeah. you're already in a vulnerable position, you know? Yeah. So it is July, 2020. Yes. I'm at my sister's wedding. Okay. Like, honestly, one of the best weekends of my life because I also found out she was pregnant that weekend and she's my only sister. Like I said, I have three kids. We never have experienced anything like that together. It was just like yeah. amazing. 
So I'm sitting at her reception and I get a text from him that says, I'm getting my guns back. And it had like 50 smiley face emojis after. And I don't know what prompted me to do this, but I took a screenshot of that. And I went over to my mom and I said, mom, this is not what's going on. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm really scared. He shouldn't have his guns. Yeah. The reason that he was getting his guns back is he got orders to go to move to a new location and his arms room could no longer take those guns because he was less than 30 days out from his move. Okay. So technically the guns should have never been returned to him, but because of these weird loopholes, they were. Why were his guns so important to him? I don't know. I don't know. And I actually texted him at when he said that. I said, do you really think that this is a good idea? I think maybe, you know, I wait until I come home and then I can take them and keep them with me until yeah. you're more comfortable. He was so, so he, I don't know if this matters, but to me, I guess it does because it, it mattered to him. He was black and he was afraid the place that he was moving to was like backwoods country like place. Mm-hmm. And he was afraid not having guns, he wouldn't feel safe and protected. Now, I don't fall into that category of people who think that way. Mm -hmm. I totally respect that he felt that way, but I think it was more of a, I think he already planned on doing this. If, if I I hate to say it that way because it sounds so callous, but he was so obsessed with those guns from the time they got taken away. He called every single week. When can I get my guns back? When can I get my guns back? Wow. And even like his chain of command was like, you know, they said 30 days, but the chain of command wouldn't allow him to pick them up after that 30 days. They were like, no, you know, we'll take care of it. And then it just sort of, they, he got ended up getting a letter in the mail that he should have taken to them that said, you can come get these. If not, they'll be auctioned off by X date. And he didn't tell them and he went and got them. But I really think he wanted the ability to be done when he was ready to be done. And the guns provided him that because he didn't have any other way. I think he needed something that was quick and decisive and that there was no coming back from. Which, I mean, you know, I actually personally know people who have survived literally the exact same thing that he did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I got that text. I, the level of anxiety that went through my body in that moment, I was like, this is not good. And this was, she got married July 25th, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So I came home, he picked me up from the airport the next day and... When you read that, though, were you worried about your safety, being that the last time he had the guns, he pulled it on you? Yeah. Or did you, like, not... truthfully, I think... I didn't really think about that until after he died. Okay. And I'll tell you... I'll explain to you why once we get to the event of Mm -hmm. him actually passing away. So he picked me up from the airport, and I felt just, like... I was supposed to stay that night at... At this time, I would say we weren't living together. I was pretty much living with the guy I'm with. Yeah. Um... But he was like, I really would like for you to stay the night. And I just remembered being like, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, I feel, and I don't remember even thinking about it, but it's saying like, yeah, I'm sorry. I just like, I want to get to the house. I have to do laundry. The kids have school. I was starting a new job the next day. It was just like a lot going on. And I was like, I just want to take a shower and go to bed because it was pretty late. I could tell he was upset. I remember backing out of the driveway because he took me to my car, which was at his house. And he just had put his hands above his head like this like cross, I don't know how to, you're going to do that in a podcast, but his hands were on his head and he started walking away. And I just, I remember thinking like, God, he looks so devastated. Like his life is falling apart. And I, my life at that point was 
I had two great jobs. I was with a person who was amazing, still is amazing, treats me amazing. Like Mm. I was like finally feeling like I was getting my shit together, you know? And it was so hard to watch somebody who, you know, we were together for 12 years. That's a long time. It is. And to watch him when I'm at such a good place and he's in this horrible place, I remember thinking, I can't let the kids sleep at this house anymore when I drove away. Like something is not right anymore here. And I didn't talk to him the next day. Honestly, that week we hardly talked because I was working so much and he would see the kids, but it would only be like for a couple hours here and there because he was getting ready to leave. So he had a lot of stuff he was like taking care of. So August 3rd, I had a little too much to drink and I ended up getting in a fight with Josh, the person that I'm currently with. I need to stop saying that, but I just want to make it very clear. So we'll say Josh and then I'm going to say Steve is, was the guy I was married to. Okay. So on August 3rd, Josh and I got in a fight. I ended up texting Steve to say, Hey, when are you leaving? When do you want to see the kids? It was basically just the logistics of, was he going to take the kids to school when they started school and blah, 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 just like stuff like that. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I really think I might be, I might want to get my own apartment. Do you think you could just help me with the first month? My jobs will, because I was a stay-at-home mom for the entire time we were married up until this point, um, just because I was wanting to be with my kids. But now that we really weren't together and I was moving on, I was working. I wanted to make sure everything was like working on a schedule with him as well. Yeah. So I said, you know, I really want to get my apartment, but could you just help me with the first month? And he was like, Do you, can you come over? And I was like, yeah, I've had a couple of beers. Like, I don't feel comfortable driving, especially with the kids. And he was like, I just really need to talk. And I was like, okay, but we can talk on the phone if you want to talk on the phone. But I don't feel comfortable driving. And he was adamant, like kept asking repeatedly, please come over, please come over. And I finally was like, what's going on? I, at this point, it was like probably nine or 10 o'clock at night. I was already laying down. I was ready for bed. Were you at I, Josh's apartment? I was at Josh's house. Was he, yeah. Was Josh there? Josh was there, but he was asleep. You guys had All had the kids a fight. were asleep. Yeah. yeah, it was just like, honestly, not even a big deal, like a little disagreement. But, you know, sometimes you drink and of course, it I seems it. like a way bigger deal than it is, of you know? Course. Anyways, he kept saying, like, can you come over? And I kept being like, no. Eventually, he tried to call me. And at this point, my baby, who she's not a baby, she was three, was sleeping with me on the couch. And I was like, I'm not going to answer the phone right now. And it wasn't like in a mean way. It was just like, I don't want to wake her up. I put my phone down, didn't touch it again. I wake up the next morning to my alarm because I had to get ready for work. And I see a text that says, I'm not going to direct quote, but basically you don't have to worry about money anymore. Hmm. And I was like, what the fuck? So I try to call straight to voicemail. I'm like, okay. So I, we have, I don't know if you've heard of Life360. It's like a, no, it's like, it's like, find my friends okay. or find my whatever find yeah, yeah, my yeah. iPhone app okay but he had an android so he had that on his phone and i had it on my iphone where i could pull it up and see where he was so i pull it up he's still his phone is still charging and is still at the house at this point i think it was like 8 30 9 o'clock in the morning there's no way he shouldn't have been at work and i know that day he had an appointment because he was like returning gear or something like that where were your kids at this point they were with me at josh's okay. house so I'm calling Steve, calling him, nothing. Finally, I texted and I'm like, I'm getting really worried. I'm going to call your warrant officer, um, whose name I'm just not going to say because he. Yeah, I'm going to say it. Okay. I know it's like there's a whole other side story to that situation. He was supposed to be with him 
with Steve at all times because of his suicidal tendencies, ideations, all that stuff. He was supposed to have, he was his battle buddy. Okay. So and I'm just like, to be I'm clear, gonna... at this point, he's still supposed to be deployed again? No. So at this point, they had said, no, you're not deploying. We're uh, PCSing you, which is a permanent okay. change of station. So they were moving him to a totally different place. Because of his um, mental health, though, they were making yes, that because of Yes, because of his mental health. And actually, it ended up his unit didn't even ever deploy. Um, so he wouldn't have actually missed anything. So this yeah. whole mental decline about not deploying ended up being for no reason because they still haven't deployed and it's been three years since he passed away. So anyway, I call this guy who is his warrant officer and I'm like, have you heard from Steve? No, I have not. Okay. Well, I haven't heard from him from last night. This is his last text message. Okay. Let me try to call. And I said, can you just go over there? Well, actually he was out of town on vacation with his family. Now there were other backup plans in place for him, who he was supposed to call if this person wasn't available. I was one of those people, but I didn't put two and two together because we were talking about totally unrelated stuff when he was asking me to come over. And at the time when he was asking, I was thinking, oh, he just wants me to get out of this situation because we're having a disagreement, whatever. Anyway, I was like, okay, you know what? He's supposed to have the kids this morning because his appointment was supposed to be at eight and then he was going to have the kids while I worked and then I was going to get them after work. So I'm like, I'm just going to take the kids over there. Everything's fine. I'm overreacting. So I get the kids in the car. I drive. It's maybe a 15-minute drive. I get to the house. All the doors are open. All the windows are open. The garage door is open. The door from the garage into the house is open. His car is there. Immediately, I looked at it, and I was like, something's not right. Like, this is not okay. Also, definitely put a trigger warning before this. I was just what I'm thinking, about to yeah. say is like totally fucked up. I will fully put a trigger warning. Okay. So I get there. I thank God. I'm not religious. Whatever. Thank some, the universe for telling me, leave the kids in the fucking car. Yeah. I'm I walk really in, hoping you were about to say that. Yes. They were in the car. I walk in. I texted Josh and I said, the house is a disaster. I don't hear anything. I'm yelling for him. And he was like, you should leave and just mm-hmm. call the cops. And I was like, no, everything's fine. He's probably in the shower. We're being dramatic. The house was riddled. I mean, there was probably over 200 monster or like Red Bull cans everywhere. I mean, it was, I've never seen, it was like the epitome of like, when you think of like your mental health is fucked up, that is what this house looked like. It looked like someone's brain when they are just like in a total depressive Depressive, manic yeah Yeah. everything so I go in and the way this house it was a split level so like you walked in there was like a basement area kitchen and then you went another up another flight of stairs to the bedroom so I go and I'm like yelling Steve you know where are you I get to the master bedroom the door's locked I don't know why at this point I was not like hey you should leave you should go to your car and call the cops I went downstairs and got a hanger. I went to the basement. I like put the extra effort in. I got a hanger to pop the lock up. I walk in and the way the bedroom was, there's like a hallway, the bed's over here. And then there's a wall of mirrors that you turn around in the bathrooms here. Soon as I opened the door, the first thing I saw was his reflection. Uh, Sorry. Okay. Um, Was his reflection. He had um, shot himself in the temple. Um, 
Anyway, I immediately called 911 and I was like, um, sorry. Please don't apologize. You're so fine. Screaming. I don't even think it was like coherent what I was saying to this lady. And she's like, I need you to calm down. I need to know where you are. So I finally was able to like get the address out. She was like, I need you. I need you to touch him. I need you to go over to him oh. and see if he's alive. And I'm like, listen, okay, Why? I I don't do this anymore because trauma, but I used to be obsessed with like podcasts of cry- true crime, like yeah, uh, crime junkie, all that, moms and murder, like obsessed, listen all the time. And I'm yeah. like, listen, I had said on the phone, I was like, I know about lividity and I can tell you his blood is settled at the bottom of his body. He has been dead for over 12 hours at this point. It was probably 1030 when I was there. And I was like, I don't want to touch him. She's like, I need you to touch him to feel if he's cool to the touch. Literally the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me in my Are entire life. I touched this his woman. Foot. I want to rip her apart. What the fuck? I, that's how I felt after when it, when I finally like processed everything I, that, that was one thing I was in therapy about. Cause that's fucked. I mean, like that's I so can fucked. see he's, there's no, his, eyes were it was disgusting there's no way this person was alive okay like and it was and she and I remember her saying on the phone like you want to help him you want to save him and I'm like there is a point where someone cannot be saved and I'm telling you based on all the information that I have in this situation he is not alive there's no saving him I'm so angry at this woman holy fuck (laughs) yeah definitely not an ideal situation so I ended up doing it anyway and I was like cold to the touch there's you know yeah. whatever I, and after that I couldn't be in the room anymore because to me it was like I knew he wasn't there and it was more traumatic to sit and try to like process it with his body there and your kids so, are sitting in the car right so Jesus. in the I would say I don't it felt like an hour but it was probably five minutes before EMTs were there the same officer who showed up and saved his life essentially on St. Patrick's Day was the first person on scene. And he just walked up to me and gave me a hug and he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Now, this is where I should have gone into survival mode and not victim mode, okay? I was so, didn't even know how to process. The chaplain shows up, who also, fuck that guy. He's a piece of shit and we could get into that later. I'm not, again, like I said, I'm not religious. So I would have actually preferred if he was not there because to me it was so disingenuous. So he comes and he's like, you need to start making phone calls. And I'm like, I can't call his mom first. I I, I knew I couldn't. So I called my mom. She said, I was crying immediately on the phone. She's like, what's going on? And I said, Steve died. And she was like, oh my God, you know, hold, I'll call you back. So I hang up with her and I said, okay, I think I'm ready to call his mom and tell her because I just needed my mom. She got off the phone with me, bought plane tickets for my whole entire family. And they were in the state that I lived in at the time in less than uh, 24 hours, my whole family. And I have, there's with in-laws and everything included, it was like 10 people that were just across the country showed up for me, Wow, um, which was amazing. Okay. Like I needed it. So, um, I call his mom, who I'll call uh, Janet. Okay, so I okay. I called Janet, Steve's mom, and I was like, and again crying, and I said I came to the house today and I found Steve. And mm-hmm. her first question to me was, "Is he alive?" Now at the time I was like, "What?" Like 
no, she knew the whole history of everything that had yeah. happened. So to me, it was like, why would you even ask that? Because I, I actually think I said something like he shot himself or he something about it was something having to do with a gun in that first sentence. Yeah. And she said, is he alive? And I was like, no. And I just remember thinking, why would you ask that question? So she's freaking out. And I was like, I have to go. I have to go because they're asking me questions. At this point, if I had been smart, I would have said, I want you to do a GSR, which is gunshot residue um, thing on me to make sure I don't have any because I hadn't been close enough to him or the gun or anything that I should. That would have been key in protecting myself from everything that was about to happen. But how were you supposed to know that this but, woman was no, about to try to, to go me, at you? Like, this is going to sound it's probably psychotic, but I grew up listening to like my dad loved forensic files and that mm -hmm. type of thing. And so in my head, I was always like, if I'm ever in a situation, I know what steps I need to take. But guess what? My brain didn't give a fuck. My brain was not. like, this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen in your life. You need to just focus on your kids. So eventually the police came, somebody from his unit came and they took my kids to uh, Josh's house to stay mm -hmm. with him while I figured everything else out. And then I was kind of just there and I was like, what do, what do you need now? And they're like, well, we have to wait for the coroner to get here. Mind you, it, this had been about two hours since I found him. The coroner still was not there. So his body's just laying there and there's police in and out of this house, like EMTs, whatever. And I was like, do I have to stay? They said, no, I could leave. So I left. I had to call my work. I have to call like other family members. At the time, his baby brother was driving cross country, moving from North Carolina to Los Angeles. So I was like, I don't want to call him and tell him this. Like he's in the middle of this huge thing. And so I told his parents, I was like, you guys need to handle that. Like, I, I, I just can't do it. And then I, you know, asked them like, can you guys come out here? Like, what's your plan? They were like, we don't have time. We need to think about this. We'll call you when we're ready is what they said. Were you so close like, with them up until that point? Like, had you had a good relationship with them? I... <sighs> It's so complicated. I could probably do another podcast just on how fucked up his family dynamic was because, well, mine too. It's all, there's a lot of baggage, but I had always remained very close with them. Even though we had a lot of ups and downs, like they're the type of people who, if you need them, they're going to show up for you. Yeah. And so in this moment, I thought this is a moment, even if it's not for me, for your grandkids no, are going to show up. Yeah. Right. Because now mind you, I'm going to say this, and honestly, you can edit this out if you want to, but I think the whole, this is probably the most fucked up part about all this. When he attempted in March, I asked his mom to come out here, out there, because I don't live in the state anymore, mm -hmm. but to come out there and be with him because I knew I couldn't handle it, but I thought if he has somebody here who's with him all the time, it would be better. Like, but I couldn't be that person for him because we were also trying to like separate, you know, like it was a very complicated situation. She was not working at the time. I offered to even buy her a plane ticket and she said no. Okay. Now in retrospect, she was like, I should have come out there. I should have stayed with him. But when everything turned around and she started blaming me for everything, it was, well, you wouldn't let me come out there and you wouldn't let me stay with him. Even though I was the one who originally asked her to come and stay. So they said, we'll let you know. So I'm like, okay, well, I have to make funeral arrangements and I'm starting all that stuff tomorrow. I knew he wanted to be buried at Arlington. That was a huge thing for him um, because his grandfather was in the military and he was supposed to be buried there and he was not. And so he was like, this is the only thing I ask of you. That's all I want when I die is I want to be buried there. So I was like, mm -hmm. yes, we can do that. 
So the next day I go and you have to meet with a chaplain and then you get assigned to what's called a casualty assistance officer or CAO is what we call it. I didn't know how anything worked. At this time, I was like thinking, thank God I have jobs that I can continue to support myself. So when someone passes away in the military, um, you automatically get what's called a death gratuity. It's $100,000 that they just immediately within 24 hours give the next of kin, which obviously Whoa. in this situation, because we weren't even legally separated, was me. He also, two weeks before he died, updated his insurance policy where I got all of his insurance money. Okay. Did you and know that he had done that two weeks before? He I died? had no idea. Okay. No, no clue. I had told him when we started separating everything like finances and all that, which we had only been doing that for about two months because I had just started working. And he was so great and supportive about that. Like he wanted his kids he wanted to make sure they were taken care of financially. So money was never a problem. But when he said that last message and said, you know, you never have to worry about money again, I think he obviously, and I can't, I'm speculating because obviously we didn't have yeah. a conversation, but I believe that he was regarding, talking about this money that he knew that I would get at, as soon mm -hmm. as he passed away. Yeah. So again, I had no idea. I mean, I, I know obviously there's insurance and stuff, but I at no point thought I would be the beneficiary because we were not together. So I'm yeah. thinking if anything, it's going to be the kids or his parents. Yeah. But he had made a point to go in and update this before he passed away. So I didn't discuss that with his family at all because I felt like that's, it was a lot of money. I'm not going to disclose the amount, but I'm comfortable for the rest of my life yeah. on what I got. From what he made so, in the military or was it assets? Assets, but also, um, so I got life insurance money and then I also will receive his pension um, until the kids, I'll receive a huge chunk of his pension until the kids are adults and then it will cut in half when my last kid turns 26 or something like that. Okay. So I basically receive his pay for the rest of my life. Either way you're um, set, Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm very comfortable, which is probably literally the only good thing that's coming out of this situation. And you can even take this part out if you want to, but. No, I think it's all relevant and interesting and God, I would love to have his side, you know, not his side, but his. I um, know, like what he was thinking. Yes. Cause there is this, he thought about this. Yeah. He put, it was a lot of intention behind it. There's a lot of intention behind it. And that must have been a wild headspace. It had to be. It had to be because I did speak with his therapist after he passed away. And this was a woman who had only seen him twice. Mm -hmm. And he, I didn't even know he had gone to this, but he, I guess, was seeking her out to figure out how to transition into therapy when he moved to his new duty station. Mm -hmm. And she, she spoke with me, but she also spoke with everyone in his unit who had seen him in the like time leading up to his death. And she was like, if you talk to everybody you put a story together of him saying goodbye to people. And she yeah. was like, it's so weird. When I would talk to him, how he sounded so joyful and hopeful for the future. But then when he would leave this room, the things that he was actually physically going out and doing and saying were total Closure. opposite, like yeah. giving giving things away. Like I thought it was a big deal. He had just bought signed a lease on a new apartment and he was so excited about it. But it turns out he never actually even signed the lease. He just told me he did. He opened the email and he never like filed through with it. Yeah. But he planned this for a long time and him getting his guns back was a huge part of it. Yeah. And I, I think he was counting on everything coinciding the way that it did. Now, 
I, this is going to sound fucked up too, but like, I'm very thankful that it happened before he left because I was not moving with him to where he was going How and he didn't know anybody. He was going? I think it was like an 18 hour drive, but I was oh planning God. at that time. Yeah. It was like across How was country. that going to work with the kids though? So what our plan was, was we were going to, that he would take them for the summer or I would come and stay with him for, you know, like two weeks, three weeks out of the summer to have them. And then he would get them all holidays. If, if he was off work, they were coming to him or he would come okay. to them. Um, because to me, again, like my main priority was their relationship. And eventually I was only staying in Colorado because uh, Josh was still in the military, but he was planning on getting out um, at the end of 2020. And so we were going to move closer to where he was after that happened. Had Josh met Steve? Yes. Are we saying Steve? Okay. Yes, Steve. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. They met, they met when we were dating for maybe like a month. Because I, listen, I probably should have given myself time to be single, but when I met Josh, I can't say enough good things about him as a person. He is like just the kindest, most understanding, loving person. Just the fact that he stood by me through all the shit that was about to go down and not just stood by me, but loved me and supported me and my kids through it. Like that is not something that people do. And I told him, I said, if this is too much, I literally, I came back to his house after the police and everything. And I was like, this is what happened. If this is too much for you and you can't do it, I get it. And he was like, don't say that. Like, I don't feel that way. And I was like, I know, but if it ends up being too much, like, mm-hmm. it's okay. You have an out. Later. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and he's also in the military, correct? He out. was. He's not okay. anymore. He did get. He ended up getting out. He was going through a divorce the same time as me, but his uh, kid's mother actually gave up. Like she has no rights or custody at all to their kids. Oh wow. Um, he has kids. So they're with us all the time, and so there's no way he knew he couldn't be in the military and be a full time parent to them because. So you guys he would are be now gone all the time. All your kids together. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, it's definitely a full house, but I love it. I mean, <laughs> I would. Love it, yeah. They're four to 11 and they're six. Of, we have six total. Like oh. I have three, he has three, but I don't know. It's just never where I thought my life would be, no. but it's a really cool adventure and they all get along so great. Like, especially under the circumstances, blending family is never easy. And then you add on like them losing their mom and then my kids losing their dad. It's like traumatic as fuck. Yes. And I think but we've yet done somehow an okay you've job. been able to put those roles in their life pretty quickly for both yeah. of them. For just one more question about Josh. Um were you scared or did you do you have any did you have any hesitation about dating someone or being with someone in the military after you had just gone through military trauma? Yes and no. So Josh never deployed. Okay. They were both in the army, but inside the army there's different branches. Steve was in Intel. Mm-hmm. Um and I knew when he joined his job was something that was going to be like a mental problem, like cause mm-hmm. mental issues. Like it was very clear. And he was only 23, I think when he joined. So we were pretty young still. Yeah, I mean, I was only 20, 20 or 21. Like, Oh, I was 20. Cause we got married when I was 20. And so, I mean, we were pretty young. Um, but I don't think we fully understood, but when I met, um, Josh is younger than me. He's actually five years younger than me. He was only 25 when we met, but mm-hmm. I, really was open about what my experience was being married to someone in the space and way that my like relationship was with him. And I said, I, you know, I don't have any interest in that. So if it's something that you 
are feeling like this is a career for you or um, it's like mentally affected you, like I I respect you and I want to tell you now, like I can't do that. So I don't want to start anything. And he was super open about any issues that he had, but also he has some really good coping skills. Like he grew up in a much more solid family where they deal with things instead of brush everything under the rug. And I think that in itself is something that is very rare. I mean, I grew up and Steve also, you don't deal with things. You just pretend it doesn't exist. And that's where you get these mental health issues from. Yeah. So you guys are now raising your kids to deal with shit. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, my kids were in therapy almost immediately after their dad passed away because I was like, I don't know how I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. I'm not going to try to figure out what you're doing. So the military was not a career for him. It was a stepping stone because he had a kid really young and he wanted to make sure that he had a a solid income. So military was Steve's life, whereas for Josh, it was a stepping stone. Much different mentality. Totally different mentality. Definitely, Okay, so jumping back in, we were – where were we? We were at – Seeing the chaplain the next day. Yes, seeing the the chaplain. Yes. So they talked to me about money was their biggest thing first, and then the second thing was they gave me a list of funeral homes that I could use. I had decided to have him cremated because – the way things go when you get buried in a military cemetery, especially someplace like Arlington, which is like obviously huge, you have to request a date. So if you are being like his, his internment was uh, like four months after he passed away. So like he had to be cremated because you can't just like have someone yeah, basically course. sitting around for that amount of time. So he had to be cremated, but the when I finally contacted the funeral home, they were like, we could do a visitation or I know there's other words for it, mm-hmm. but you know, when you basically the part before viewing, visitation, mm-hmm. viewing, I don't really know, whatever. In my head, I've been to a lot of funerals. They're always called one of those two words. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, I'd really like to do that. Well, so he died August. We I found him August 3rd, or I'm sorry, I found him August 4th, but I believe he passed away August 3rd, which yeah. will turn out to be a whole nother thing as well. So his viewing was August 11th. After I left the funeral home that day, I contacted his parents and so I his said, parents I weren't there. no, they did not come. My whole family was there. They said they were still trying to figure things out with their casualty officer and they would let me know. But there was like, so there was he, his death, his visitation. And then at the end of August was a military memorial from his unit for him. Okay. So in, I texted him about the viewing and I'm going to see, actually, if I can find this text from his dad, what his response was. Now, at this point, my family sat me down and had a sort of intervention with me where they were like, we really don't think that you should be giving any information to Steve's family or letting them know anything about money. We also really think it would be beneficial for you to essentially completely cut off communication with his family because we had had a lot of issues in the past. My parents straight up just didn't like them. They just didn't like each other. And in my head, this is all within 24 hours of his death. Okay. Mm -hmm. That my family's saying this, um, I'm trying to make these arrangements. Like my head was all over the place. Of course. So at that point I got his note that day. And when I read the note, leave a note. He did leave a note. Where did and he leave it, it? In the bathroom next to him. So I didn't see it when I went in there because I was like, obviously, yeah. you know. But they made a copy of it for me because they need to keep the original for like evidence, whatever. And then they also brought me his personal belongings. Like he had a watch and a bracelet on. So 
I read his note and this is after my parents had done this little intervention thing. And in the note, he essentially says, I've been suffering for a long time. You kept me here longer than I would have been if you hadn't been around. I just can't do this anymore. Tell the kids I love them. Tell my parents that they should have done something for me a long time ago because they knew I was suffering. Hmm. And I also had received and didn't see this until months later, but he had emailed me all these, forwarded me all these emails that he had sent his mom over the years of him saying like, I'm really depressed. I want to die. I want to kill myself. And basically them either not responding or telling him to get over it. Okay. So in that context, I saw that as he's blaming his parents for this. Yeah. The last conversation he and I had had on the phone, he was like, I don't, I should have just stopped the kids talking to my parents years ago. Like, I don't know why I deal with them. So I, at that point was like, I really need to just step back communication with them. I'm not going to cut them out completely, but I don't feel comfortable uh, relaying details. I'll let the casualty officers do all that stuff. Well, then we decided on this viewing and my casualty officer was like, I think it'd be weird coming for me because I've never talked to them. I think you should just send a text and let them know. Okay. So I sent a text to his dad and I said, Hey, are you guys coming for Steve's viewing? Mm -hmm. His dad texted me and said, we haven't really talked about it. And I said, okay, but when are you planning? Are you planning on coming at any other time or to his memorial? He said, we haven't talked about it. Please bear with us. So I was like, okay, this was all August 4th. So this is literally the day he died within 24 hours. I'm figuring all this stuff out. So then, oh, I'm sorry. This was August 5th. I didn't hear from them nothing until August 9th. Mind you, his viewing was August 11th. I can't believe this. He said, can I talk? And I said, no, I, I can't talk on the phone. I'd rather text. What's up? We as a family have decided that we will not be attending the viewing for Steve. Janet cannot bear the thought of seeing her son like that. None of us want to keep him that way in our memory either. We want to keep our last memories of him intact. And seeing him in a viewing will be unbearable for us. Take your time. Sorry. I hope you understand and respect our decision. We love you and the babies. Please let us know if you need anything. We're here for the four of you. And I said, and I don't even care. This is so fucking passive aggressive. And I was like, okay, thank you. I'm glad you'll be able to keep your memories of him intact. I'll see yeah, you at the memorial. Meanwhile, you had to see what you had to see. Right. And it's like, it just Wait, was, was it going so to be callous. an open viewing? Yes. Like an open casket. And it was. I went and he <sighs> looked exactly the same you couldn't tell at all he was I mean I, he literally looked like he was sleeping and I've been to a lot of funerals I don't know what magic these people performed I was on gonna his say face I mean you saw him completely different a few days earlier I am so thankful that I decided to do that because it was like I walked in there and I was holding my youngest and she was like daddy and like I mean that's how it looked like he was just laying there sleeping but thank god they had like a net over him like you could see through it but like they couldn't touch him or anything. So my older two were in there for maybe a minute and they were like, I have, we have to go. But I stayed in there with my youngest. She talked to him and like, was like, okay, Olivia, I'm going to let you go to sleep now. Like, you know, three-year-old, whatever, how it was one of the most beautiful, be heartbreaking moments, but she was so, she didn't even, she just didn't understand. And, and, and she remembers it. I mean, she's almost six now and she will talk about seeing him and, oh, remember when daddy was sleeping? Like she understands that he wasn't like there, but it was such a great moment of closure for her and for me too, to see that for her. But my mom was there and my little brother were there for me that day. They ended up staying longer than everybody. So they stayed for that. And it was, I definitely needed that because I was a mess after that day. And so 
after that, I was like, I'm done with this. I can't deal with it. I'll text his brothers. But like for you to sit there and say, I'm, I'm dealing with all of this. And for you to say that, it's like, what a slap in the face. Like, yeah, I would love to just stick my head in a hole and pretend none of this is happening. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, I have to fucking deal with it. So then I st- talked to my casualty officer and I was like, you know, I'm really I don't even know if I want them to come to the memorial. And he was like, unfortunately, that is not for you to decide. You can decide if you want them to come to Arlington. But he was like, the memorial is more of like an open, anybody can come thing. But we're there and they were on the other side. I didn't even look over, acknowledge nothing. They didn't try to text me when they were in town. They didn't try to call me when they were in town, like nothing. And so I was like, whatever. I had texted his brother pictures that I found of the two of them. And I thought if he doesn't respond to this, to me, they don't want to talk or see me. So I'm just going to let it go. Afterwards, I did get a text saying, like, it's really messed up that you didn't let us see the kids. And it's like, well, what what was I supposed to do if you're like, you know what I mean? And I chose not to take the kids to the memorial because I felt like the viewing plus the memorial plus the funeral, it was just like it's a lot. It's a too lot. much. Yeah. So after that, they went back to their state. I started getting my stuff together. At that point, I was in the middle of moving from all my, because even though I was living with uh, Josh, my stuff was still at the house that Steve and I had ended up renting together. I decided I'm going to move into an apartment because I thought it's too much for the kids to be at Josh's house with his kids. There's just like too much stuff going on. They need their own space where they can come home. And so we got an apartment. And then his family deleted me off Facebook. And that just like, all of a sudden? All of a sudden. Well, actually, I'm sorry. I take that back. His mom and his stepdad deleted me off Facebook. I thought that was weird. But I was like, okay. They didn't block me, mind you. So I could still see everything they're posting. I get an email from someone who was a mutual friend. They were like, hey, I saw this post on Janet's Facebook page. How long after is this? Less than a month. Maybe a month. I can tell you. I I have screenshots of all this, so I can tell you exactly what day this was. It looks like this first post that I screenshotted was from September 13th. Okay. Okay, so this is from Janet. We are still not allowed to speak or see our grandchildren, Steve's children, which I want to remind you, at no point did they ask me to talk or see the kids, okay? Um, They weren't even at the military memorial that we went to, and I wonder if they'll be at Arlington. She, meaning me, blocked, not true, most if not all of our family on social media, which is the only place that we can see current photos of the kids. Again, mind you, at no point did she ask me for photos of the kids. She won't respond to any of our family's phone calls, text messages, etc. She has also now blocked my ability to post or tag anything on his now memorial page, which I did not block anybody's. I don't even know how to do that. After reading the report of the sheriff's department and the coroner, we noticed several discrepancies, including something in her witness statement, putting whatever made up issue she has aside. I asked her via text if she noticed that something was odd. She never responded. Uh, when she's saying something's odd, she put in quotation or in parentheses, the position of his body, the location of the weapon, an open exterior door, an additional head injury unexplained, no GSR, no victimology done. She was also allowed to remove his cell phone from the scene. The list goes on. Both the deputy sheriff and the army chaplain stated that the scene was peculiar, yet there was no thorough investigation done. In all, it contradicts 
that his death was ruled a suicide. My son's mental health issues, depression, started in March. He never hurt his children or her, but someone, quote, anonymously reported him for domestic violence and abuse. No charges were filed because they were found to be false. Her family told her to leave him because of his mental issues. So she did and moved in with her boyfriend, Josh, who was also in the army. The day my son passed away, one of her priorities was to remove all the pictures of her and her boyfriend from her social media account, which is not true. I literally had one photo of us up and I took it down that night because we had a fight. I changed my profile picture. That was literally it. Okay. The night before when you were fighting. Right. He, okay, before okay, he okay. died. Well, yes. We were, yeah. I was being petty. You know, I don't know. Like, no, I don't I have any it. excuse for it. Whatever. And then she put in parentheses on August 3rd. My son said to me, mom, she took my dogs. She took my kids. And now she's rubbing that son of a bitch in my face. Steve and me weren't legally separated or even divorced. Yet she had a boyfriend who she moved in with and had been living with for months. <sighs> on August 4th, after telling me of my son's passing, we chat via text. I stated that we didn't understand because, quote, we were really talking about his future. She replied that they were as well. However, her witness statement to the sheriff's department indicate that she had a conversation and he was more despondent. She was the last known conversation with him on the night of August 3rd. If her statement to law enforcement is actually what occurred, then it would seem that a choice was made to do nothing to help him, since she didn't call him until the next morning when she was supposed to bring his children to him. Around August 15th, we learned from our casualty officer that she didn't want us, Steve's parents, to attend his military memorial, which is very plausible that they told him that because I didn't want them there. And I've never denied that. I mm -hmm. don't like being around them in this situation. Okay. Sometime between August 19th and 21st, she contacted my ex-husband, Steve's biological father, in an effort to turn him turn him against me on August 20th, the night before the memorial, we learned that she had cremated our son, which I have text message proof that I told him I was doing this. Okay. Uh, we learned that she had cremated our son. She never told anyone in our family that this took place. We still don't know when or why this is a tiny fraction of the oddities around my son's death. I now believe it is too much that she doesn't want us to speak to the kids, but that she doesn't want them to speak to us. After all, it would be it was my grandson who told us about her boyfriend. No, to be clear, I am not accusing her of anything. I was about to say, why didn't she just say, I believe that this woman killed my son? Right. To be clear, I am not accusing her of anything. I mention her behavior because this reality is in complete contrast to the pic picture she has painted to the members of Steve's unit on her social media platforms, previous posts that I was able to see. If you think... You know her, you don't. But if you even slightly offend her, you will learn quickly what it is to have a story manufactured about you and any relationship you thought you had. It will be destroyed. To me, that is literally her laying out how, and then there's so many more posts after that, basically saying that they've contacted people in the FBI, that they've contacted the sheriff's department. And there are other later posts where she brings up Josh and how Josh and was covering for me or, I mean, I can read those, but it kind of just gets repetitive, yeah, basically that, makes... but going into detail. Now, I did tell her when I first went to the house, I thought it was really odd that all the doors were open. In retrospect, I believe he was trying to warn me to call the police, just like he locked the door. Like he wanted a reason for me to say something's not right. So I would call the cops. That's what I think. And she also mentioned that the police immediately decided that it was a suicide. Well, again, as I mentioned before, 
the guy who showed up was the same officer who had to talk him down from the quote unquote ledge four months before that. So he had a history with this situation. I called the coroner and I was like, I don't know what to do. And she was like, listen, this is a cut and dry case. She was like, everything adds up. You have nothing to worry about. As a mom, try to understand where she's coming from, that she doesn't want to accept that her child could do this. And I was like, okay, yeah. But then in his note, he says, my parents are to blame. Right. So just at that point when that was all happening, I got off social media. I blocked his, I did block his family after that on literally everything because I was like, no. Well, then this is actually another important post for me to read. Yeah, I please. went in October to, I bought a house in the town that I was moving to, which mm-hmm. was on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, uh, I went to stay with my brother for the night because he lived in the town. I get my phone blowing up with screenshots that someone has sent me of her going off on basically me. Did you say when we started that now you have a relationship with her or they're back in your life a little bit? Yeah, it's very um Is it cuz I mean it's obviously cuz of the kids. Well, yeah, but they don't really talk to the kids. I want them to have a relationship which it's actually ironic I my kids have no relationship with my parents at all anymore like because Mm. of the issues my dad's alcohol I they haven't seen my kids in about a year and I don't let them talk text nothing like they have zero communication now I talk to my parents but they are not allowed to talk or see the kids I have let my kids talk with Steve's parents quite a few times I honestly offer every weekend for them to video chat but we don't always I would say we've maybe done it a handful of times it's just like you know, life. But I think it's really important for them to, especially with their uncles, have a relationship because there are things about their dad that I don't know and that about his childhood or just about him. I mean, he's 34 when he died. So he had a whole, you know, from 20 and before that was all time that I didn't know him. So I want them to have that. And I also think culturally, it's really important. They're biracial. They're, you know, have black family that they can go to and learn that part of their culture. I can't offer that to them. And I, I think that that's super important. So anyways, I'm, I'm out there, I'm buying my house. I get these notifications of this, these messages and I'm going to read this now. It's also extremely long, probably longer than the last one. Janet said, every day I say that I will try to do one thing, anything, just to keep moving. And every day I get stuck and I freeze. I lose track of time. If I get to sleep, it's for a few minutes and I wake up each morning since August 4th. I have to force myself to eat at least one meal a day. And there are days when I can't eat anything at all. Crying is my only continual activity. Basically, blah, blah, blah. She goes on to talk about how hard everything is for her. And then she says, gut instinct is an interesting thing as it pertains to how people regard it. We've all seen or experienced it and how it's played out. Gut gut instincts have been created with, have been credited, I'm sorry, with preventing various situations and fostering others, for example. This sense is more often heralded with great appreciation. However, when children have a gut, when parents have a gut instinct about the death of their child, they are commonly blown off as just grieving parents. And though well-intended expressions of empathy are encouraged, we are told to accept whatever is said to us. That's not to say that there aren't situations where grieving families may be seeing something that is not there, but it is important to consider the character of the family and parents you are condescending to. So I'm just going to lay out for context. She's basically saying that they don't believe that it was suicide and that everyone is telling them that it was, and they should just accept that. 
and that she is essentially saying like she's so much smarter than everyone around her that that should be taken into account okay mm-hmm. we have shared some of the reports that we have received i.e sheriff's report coroner's report with several people in the justice system these people active and retired law enforcement they are police fbi sheriffs attorneys district, district attorneys etc a total of 10 members of the community of the 10 only three performed what appear to be cursory glances predicated on the termination of suicide as indicated in the reports. The other seven not only read through the reports multiple times, but a few caught additional areas of question that we had not seen before. Some mentioned concern over how quickly the case was closed between 24 and 36 hours, which is very typical of a suicide, 24 to 36 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also offered their assistance to help us get more answers. With that said, these are the things that stuck out to everyone. One, an open exterior door. Number two, a fatal wound on the right side, weapon found under a pillow under the left leg. Not to mention in the earlier part of the report on the condition of the pillow, it is only mentioned by its location. There's no victimology done. There is a two-inch curvilinear abrasion on the left front scalp. He had a mark on his forehead right here uh, from banging his head against the wall a couple days before, which it was healed and closed up. So like that wasn't, but she was convinced that he had hit his head like, that day or someone had hit him in the head. There was no GSR and there was no stippling present around his wound. I don't really know enough about that to speak on it. I'm going to read what she says, but to me, the way that guns work is so unpredictable that yes, that that is important. If he was holding it like directly up to his scalp, that would have happened. I keep in mind that both the army chaplain and the deputy sheriff who filed the report commented that the scene was peculiar. The deputy expressed me and my husband that it didn't feel right. At no point did he talk to them, so I don't even know what she's talking about, okay? The on-scene deputy wrote that he thought something was wrong on the scene. Yes, you read that correctly. He thought there was something wrong. Then we discovered today that the county coroner's office that performed the autopsy is neither National Association of Medical Examiners or International Association of Coroner and Medical Examiners accredited. Why am I sharing this? Because I cannot look at the determination of his death and see not see all the holes in it. This is gut instinct. Note, I have not viewed the visual media. Both my husband and ex-husband have. I'm grieving. I'm in pain. I need to know what happened to my son. Okay. So basically in that, she's trying to list out all these reasons why he is, it's not a suicide. Yeah. And all of the reasons are her main thing, and she still talks about this, is that he shot with his right hand but the gun was under his left leg. When he shot himself, he was standing up looking in the mirror, okay? He fell backwards and into the wall. And so the way that, when you're standing and doing that, he also used the pillow as a, uh, like to muffle the sound. When his hand fell, everything fell, because he fell this way, it fell down like this. So the pillow fell on top of his hand, which was, the pillow was on top of the gun then. To me, it logically makes sense. When I look at the video, I see exactly what I saw when I was there. It makes sense. She's reaching, basically. At this point, I see this. There are several other posts that she had posted, essentially. Again, mostly at that point, she was leaning more towards going after um, saying that Josh was covering for me or that it was more shift her blame to him because I think she thought I would reach out and protect him. But through all this, I stayed quiet. I didn't respond. I didn't text her, even though I was getting text messages almost daily from her, which I didn't even read any of those essentially accusing me of 
yeah. killing him or being responsible for his death in some way. So I finally reached a point in October where I called the deputy who was there and I said, this is what's happening. And he said, listen, she has not stopped harassing us about this. And he was like, it has gotten to the point where we have had to say, if you do not continue, we will have to take legal action against you because the case is closed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now legally they have to keep the note, the gun and any personal effects like his clothing or whatever for a year after his death in case something comes up and it does look suspicious. And so in my head, I'm like that. And he, the, the deputy told me this, and I'm like, does that mean that you're going to come at, you know, 360 days and say, we are investigating you. You need to come in for this and blah, blah, blah. Mind you, this is just the uh, civilian police dealing with this. There was a whole other side with the military where like I had to go to multiple interviews. Josh had to go to multiple interviews. He ended up getting in trouble because when you're in the military and you're married legally, you're not supposed to be dating other people and you're not supposed to date married people. So it was like a whole thing. So the sheriff tells me, you're safe. We're not coming after you. Everything is fine. This is all in October. October, I finally, we had nailed down the date for the Arlington funeral, which was to be in December. On Thanksgiving, I did reach out to his family and I was like, his brother. And I was like, I really hate that things are like this. Like, I love you guys. I miss you guys. And he was like, you know, us too. And I was like, but you need to, like, you understand where I'm coming from. And his brothers were like, yeah, we get it. Like, we totally respect if you don't want to talk to us. But at the same time, like, we at least want to be there for the kids. And so I had started talking with them and, you know, repairing that relationship. I just want to get this over with and be done so I can start healing, grieving. Yeah. Like yeah. actually going through this process. The funeral's over and I, you know, they were carrying his a wood box that they put him in and they carry it from like where the actual thing takes place to where they're going to bury him. And so we were carrying it over to see where his resting spot was going to be. And after that was over, I turned around and his mom and his stepdad were literally on top of me, hugging me. And I was like, okay, I thought I was very clear. Like, I don't want this at all. They were like trying to hug the kids and like, it was very uncomfortable. But at the same time, I didn't feel unsafe. I felt like shocked because I'm like, wait, I thought there's supposed to be people here like protecting this situation. But his mom leaned in and she, you know, she hugged me and she's like, I just want you to know, like, I love you. And we're always family no matter what. And I just was like, how can you say that? And all these things that you've done and said to me, like, I don't understand. And so I left there. I was only in DC for maybe 24 hours because I, I wanted to be there minimal. And it was like the middle of the week. My kids had school. So I just wanted to get home. After that, I did talk to his brothers and he was like, it ended up being like a shit show with my parents. Like there was a huge fight. And I'm actually really glad that like you guys were not involved because I guess his brother blamed his mom for his death and was like, you should have been there. You should have been a better parent to him. Like all this fucked up shit you did to us, he would have been fine mentally if like you hadn't screwed us over essentially, yeah. which like that's his story. I'm just repeating what he said to her. And I mean, it seems pretty clear that the mom was in denial for, you know, at least the first four months and wanting to pin it on anybody, but the oh, reality. She, she st but she still is. Okay. So we have a, a relationship now. And I did, I, about six months after his funeral, I started reaching out and saying like, I really don't want things to be this way, but you, do you understand like why I felt the way I did? And her thing was, I only did that because I thought it would get you to talk to me. And I was like, but logically, does that make sense? 
Like my fear was losing my kids at this point. Mm -hmm. And if I am accused of murder in a situation where their other parent is dead, they're going to take the kids from me because I'm, you know, the suspect in this scenario. And I was like, I had to separate myself from that because I was protecting my kids. And I said, I genuinely feel I I made the right choice. I I have no regrets at all about it. I regret how I handled things in a lot of other ways, but with not communicating with his family, if they had showed up for me, I guess in their response of like his death at all, I probably would have handled it differently. But like to go from, oh my God, I can't believe he's dead to, well, we're not going to go to his memorial or his visitation, viewing, whatever, but we are going to come to his memorial, but we're going to say you won't let us see the kids, even though we haven't asked to see them. Like, it was just like all these things. And it's like, and then you outright accuse me of murder. Well, I never actually said it. I said, I'm not accusing you of murder, but these are the things that make sense. And I was like, that's basically just doing it. Like, it just didn't make any sense. I mean, it just seems like back to back trauma for like two years. And then now this is really your first year to breathe and settle. Oh, yeah, for sure. What is like a calm building a family together with the person who's really been the rock the whole time oh he I mean he is the unsung hero of the last two and a half years of my life I I can safely say that there are points where I was like I can't do this anymore and he Mm -hmm. was the person that picked me up and held me and I mean like literally physically picked me up I mean I had after we moved here days where I told him like I I don't want to feel like this anymore and he is like called his work and been like listen my lady needs mm-hmm. me. I can't come today. Like he is just so loving and caring and supportive and something that I never thought I could, I didn't even think people like this existed. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. he's like, amazing. Just been everything. Do you want to give your favorite restaurant wherever you've lived I in do. many places? I am very actually excited about this. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you for Portland area. Um, there's a place called McMinimins mm-hmm. and it's like a chain, but everyone is like, a different theme or like vibe basically. Mm-hmm. My favorite one is a place called Rock Creek Tavern. Mm-hmm. It's like a little fairy cottage basically. They have like these giant wooden mushrooms. It's really cool. It's like a little hobbit. What house. do you get there? My favorite thing to get there is their Cajun tater tots. They're freaking delicious. And they also have this um their dessert. It's like a brownie with a homemade brownie with like ice cream. It's amazing but everything that they make is so good and um their beer their stout i can't remember what it's called now but they brew their own beer their stout is literally the best beer i've ever had in my life if you enjoyed today's episode please rate and follow the podcast wherever it is you listen to it so that we can bring you more unexpected stories by ordinary people and if you don't like the episode forget what i just said and just please don't tell anyone please